Okay, hello and welcome to episode 19 of Dano Says So. Like always, or like as often as I can, early in this uh, podcasting attempt of mine, I get a hold of people I've known for a long time and whose judgment I trust. Today's guest is no exception. Richie Birkenhead and I go back 33 years. Um, he'll be well known to a lot of the people on this as the front man of Underdog and have been to another we met during his time in Youth of Today, which was a bit of an adventure for both of us, I think. Um, Richie Brickenhead, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's, uh, it's great to see your face. And, uh, Likewise, sir. And hear your voice. I, I've missed Thanks. you over the years. Mm -hmm. Both of us doing the four eyes and furry thing. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I was wondering how many of your guests are bespectacled and uh, hirsute? More, I think more. <laughs> I think more are girthy and blind than, than, than I would have expected. I think my favorite, as far as how he's aged, though, is Pete from Verbal Assault. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, amazing, amazing. I love his his head of hair so much. I yeah, love he's it. he's got the Hunter S. Thompson, Bernie Sanders combo yeah. to like a Mortal Kombat character down perfect. He's just amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. yeah in and my he, case, it's anything I can do to obscure the the hideousness. There but, you um, go. But yeah, no, no. Pete remains to this day one of my favorite people on the planet. Absolutely. Just a good, good guy. Um, Hilarious, talented, kind. Absolutely. Um, before we jump into so much of the shared mileage, I know a little bit through, through conversations when we were young, a little bit through side references on your part, and a little bit through your social networks. But can you tell me a little bit about your backgrounds and background and about your parents? Wow. Oh, wow. We're going straight there. Um, I tend to think it informs a person's creativity more than some folks would understand. Sure. I mean, I grew up in a very, um, a very strange environment. And it was simultaneously uh, wonderful and horrible um, often. Um, I don't know. In, in a nutshell, uh, very close with my mother, who's uh, not only a creative genius um, and, and who really um, sort of nurtured my, my love of the written and spoken and sung word and, and opened my, my ears and my mind and my heart to a, a very, very broad spectrum of music from a very early age. Um, I, and I remain very close with her. Um, I remain long alienated from my father, who's barely alive at this point. But um, he essentially, to sum him up, a brilliant uh, college professor and, and also was involved in theater production uh, but he's basically Jack Nicholson in the sort of latter part of The Shining uh, especially the last like 10 minutes or so that's that's my dad that's like, descriptive uh, complete with well, the, but in addition to the axes um, which the, the, there there was some of that um, lots of lots of firearms as well the thing is <laughs> so, I pointed at me yeah I did not know that about your father, and I knew that your mother's artistic work clearly left its mark on you. Could you tell? Can you tell me a little bit more about what she does and has done? She well, she's a lyricist. Um, she she happens to also be a brilliant composer, but she, you know, uh, writing lyrics is what um, she fell into as a you know for a career. Um, she started in children's television. Um, where oddly enough, I started singing uh, nepotism, you know. 
I was singing very badly at age five. Um, and then uh, in the late seventies, she started writing Broadway musicals and, um, and other things. And, and she's, done, she's done other stuff. She's an adjunct professor at Juilliard and, uh, and in their drama department. And um, she also does a lot of like pro bono stuff for uh, charitable organizations. Um, before COVID hit, she had three musicals in the works and pretty far along, but you know, like everything else that requires a live audience, those, those are on pause currently, but she's still gone. Um, unsinkable. It was one of these things that I think the way when your background has ever come up in conversation, not like, not like we all huddle around the campfire and talk about each other's folks, but, but I, I do believe telling people, I think Richie comes from show folk. You know, um, I'm a theater queen. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Well, but, but what I'm hearing here and what's going to make sense to people in this interview who know your music is singing since five helps a lot of things make sense later. Because, for instance, what you were capable of in 1988 vocally and what most of us were capable of in 1988 were two very different animals. Oh, wow. and, you know. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, but it was, like I said, it was, it was, it was weird. So that was, you know... I mean, that touching on my sort of home life there, but, but I, from a very early age, um, you know, wanted to get out of the house and explore like the, the underbelly or underbellies, plural, of New York, you know, nightlife and, and subculture, et cetera, et cetera. So started doing that at a very early age. Um, and, you know, which in a circuitous way led me through like, neo rockabilly and psychabilly to punk to hardcore as a musician or just an attendee in those psychabilly and rockabilly phases both believe it or not you know when i was 15 when i was 15 and still prepubescent i went through puberty at like age 27 um <laughs> i i looked like i was 12 when i was 15 but i was playing shows at at you know the mud club and Maxis kansas city and the peppermint lounge and a sort of rockabilly slash psychabilly band and um you know, and, and just um, going out all the time in New York at a very early age, you know, going to see the Cramps and the Gun Club. And, uh, that would be that would be really early 80s, because you and I are roughly the same age. That would be, I mean, what, what was the earliest year you went to a show to? The reason I'm asking is I've developed a fascination with New York music and New York punk, more like Max's Kansas City era and that type of stuff, very late in life. And I'm curious to see what, how much of it you got to catch a sniff of, even even in passing, you know. Yeah, or... so, so the first non, you know, I, I mean, I went to concerts from a very early age that weren't mm -hmm. punk or, or new wave or anything underground. Um, I got my first glimpse of live punk music um, from my older brother, who was going to NYU in the late 70s. And so I got to see CBGBs in 1978 and, and uh saw the Ramones, saw Patti Smith, but the first show I went to of my own volition that was a hardcore show was right. the, the Bad Brains at Max's in 81, 1981. Um, That'll leave a mark. <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was crazy, and I had only heard uh, Pay to Come, I think. I had only heard one yeah. song. Um, yeah, I mean, it was you know, just really momentous occasion, like really visceral experience, completely changed me and is it is it an oversimplification to say that that would be why uh reggae was a welcome ingredient later in underdog uh yeah i mean i think that that 
you know, although it was, um, I don't think it was ever like fully consciously done. Yeah, I mean, as far as making hardcore music, although Underdog was a weird sort of hybrid of a few things, but um, yeah, that was a huge ingredient. I mean, let's jump right into that since you you scribbled the segue. Um, when we met, you were in Youth of Today, but there was already Underdog mileage, correct? And True Blue mileage. You were so it was it was essentially an intermission, wasn't it? It, it was, yeah, it was weird. It was sort of like a, uh, a, a semi-acrimonious separation. Um, yeah. You know, I was trying to do both bands, which um, that seemed to really bother um, some members of Underdog. Mm-hmm. And so when I went on the road with Youth of Today, they were like, fuck it then, we're going to get Carl to sing and we're mm-hmm. going to we're going to have a 1987 summer tour too. And who, who can blame them? And that's, that's cool. I, it seemed weird for me because I wrote those songs, those underdog songs and, and those, well, at that point I wasn't writing like really overtly personal, you know, mm-hmm. fruity lyrics like I did later on. Um, it was still kind of weird to, to have well, someone else singing. Those the only words. thing I can say in their defense, and I never really knew any of those guys particularly well, um, just sort of socially in passing. But we both know that, you know, you didn't go on a five-week tour in 87. You relocated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, and, and, and I totally get it. And, I st- and those, you know, those guys in both bands are, are were and are brothers to me, you know, and I still love all of them very much. Um, but at that time, I, I don't know why. I thought, why can't I just do both, you know? And right. Have my cake and eat it, too. But, um, yeah, so... Uh, underdog grew out of well true blue was like this uh, this very brief name um th- and that band grew out of a band called the numbskulls i remember um, that yeah. which and it, yeah it was all kind of weird like so when i first started doing you know, i was going to hardcore shows for a few years and then when i wanted to just start playing shows um the the first seeds were sown in like 83 of uh the numbskulls and it was a friend of mine named scott cleaver who went on to play in a sort of post-punk band called surgery after that um he was going to syracuse university i went up there because a friend of his could get like free recording time on some like eight or 16 track like shitty rig and we made some demo that was you know we pressed like five copies and and, uh and anyway that that became the numbskulls and um the numbskulls slowly morphed into True Blue uh, and then Underdog. And, and the, di- the distinction between True Blue and Underdog really being, I mean, was it any of the same material or is it just the, or is the similarity simply in that song title? <laughs> uh, no, no, it was a lot. So some, some Numbskull songs became True Blue slash Underdog songs. The difference between True Blue and Underdog is in name only, really. Yeah, that's what I thought. Underdog, th- that band, whether, you, whether it's True Blue or Underdog, formed when Russ left Murphy's Law and joined okay. what was the Numbskulls, which became True Blue. Okay. So let's talk 1987. Um, I heard Underdog on a cassette tape. I think, you know, the way things worked back there, I think Dave Stein gave it to Billy Rubin. Billy Rubin gave it to me during Billy Rubin's East Coast opus where he came back looking and dressing different. Uh, <laughs> 
but also with with but I chips on his shoulder that I love about him. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, and it stood out amongst a lot of the material he brought me. It was a it was I mean, I think I think I got the un, an unmixed version of Can I Say out of that trip. I got a lot of crazy things, but the underdog stuff that eventually became the seven inch on New Beginning stood out. And to me, was a lot less template than a lot of what I was hearing out of the East Coast, right? Yeah. Now, sure. this, this might seem a little bit barbed, but then when we met in person, it was when you were playing guitar in a band that is essentially a template creator and a template standard. Yeah. And I think somewhat intentionally so. How was that? That must have been an interesting just, juxtaposition for you. Sure, yeah. And even then, it wasn't... The, wasn't lost on me you know i i was a had a very different role mm -hmm. in that band i mean honestly I, I did love the fact that um you know before i was ever in youth of today for that that album that tour mm -hmm. i did love the fact that at a time when hardcore needed saving they they came along um yep. and there was so much irony in that there was so much irony in the fact that this this essentially suburban band that was you know even though it seems weird that 1985 seemed like eons later than 1983. Right. Uh, 82, you know, 83 being the sort of tail end of that first. I, Gavin, Ogles, Gavin Oglesby and I have that exact conversation constantly. So oh, okay. go on. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I really loved what they were doing, what they represented. I, I, I still remember vividly the first time I, I, I saw Youth of Today, I was outside New York, and I immediately went up to them, and I was like, you're from Violent Children, and, mm -hmm. and we started talking, and we started reminiscing about, you know, shows like Minor Threat and DYS and, and Negative Approach and all that stuff. Um, but I, you know, Underdog was very, we purposely and purposefully placed ourselves on the fringes always and we we never you know i never wrote songs to a template um and that was also deliberate um and i i sort of i had a, i had many chips on my shoulders back then too and i um i definitely eschewed the whole like conformity within a non-conformist scene thing um and then with with youth of today it was it was such a different thing it was almost like not in a bad way but almost like pastiche it was like this love of something that you know had come before this fleeting thing this like and and trying to keep that alive and keep carrying that flag and i really ended up in that band more out of my friendship with purcell and capo and like i was really really close with those guys well when you guys were at my place in particular i remember you and you and john being pretty much inseparable yeah and we were roommates at that time in new york okay and, he moved into my apartment on Thompson Street in Soho, and we were roommates. And yeah, we were. We were inseparable friends. Um, we, yeah, I mean, around the clock, um, yeah. day in, day out. I think there, there's no upside in bullshitting and pretending that during that breakdown, the, the, the Walls era, that I didn't love me some youth, some youth of today. I absolutely did. It was a yeah. fun, fun time. And yeah, if Purcell left the screen to my house open and my dogs got out, did I hate you today for twenty minutes? Fuck yes, I did. You know, <laughs> but you know, but it was it was a great great thing. The reason I'm bringing this up, this is about you. The two people from that era who I still hold in extremely high regard would be you and Mike, you and Mike Ferraro. And I know I've told you this more than once. Yeah. But while yeah. I have people watching us together, I'm going to share it again. 
you guys lived with me for months. You developed a strong relationship with my mother, who was not a common woman. She passed away. She passed away about two years after you guys left. And out of everybody who passed through that household in hardcore, you were the two from the East Coast I, I heard from, and I've, I will never forget that. I absolutely adored your, your mother, and, and, I, and I remember bonding with her immediately. Um, and a lot of that bonding was through Jeopardy. We were, yep. we were both Jeopardy like, and Wheel of Fortune. She and I were just lights out watching Jeopardy. Just, you know, didn't matter the subject. We were just like, um, yeah, Wheel of Fortune. Um, yeah, I've, I've incredibly fond memories of that time. And, um, and I remember not long after hearing of her passing and just being absolutely heartbroken. Um, yeah, she was really wonderful. So after that whole era, after uh, YOT is a briefly West Coast band and forming, forging a lot of relationships, you know, a lot of those guys are tight with the sloth crew and so forth to this day. Revelation eventually ended up out here. I would say the net gains for everybody were positives. You went back to, you went, well, I have some chips on my shoulders, but there are two things. It's a defensiveness about California. I feel like in the waning, in the following 30 years, there's been a deification in New York that forgets where our fucking bad religion and black flag and the descendants come from, God damn it. We got to know really? shit. You know, but then, oh, and then I don't, you know, I don't, so, yeah, no, I'm, not, I'm talking about for myself. I'm sort of like, Okay. Talking about sort of talking about some of my own behavior, um, and then there are business practices, which I think it might be interesting to discuss. Not really from a severe perspective, at either one of our ends, as I think people might think. But where I'm going anyway right now is Underdog. The next time I saw you was when Underdog came west, um, and I think by then uh, was the Vanishing Point stuff in the can, demo version or album version. Yeah, I think I think demo version was in the can at that point yeah yeah i remember I, I uh i remember you sent me that stuff and and you even sent me you, you sent me a master reel to do some songs for a workshop comp that never happened oh, and yeah. god knows where those ended up in the ether but they're probably making somebody wow. thousands on ebay <laughs> <laughs> um but sort of tell me about that period and about the songwriting then because it was even further off script and I think it really raised some eyebrows in a great way. Yeah. So at that point, I mean, there was uh, there were a lot of things going on. The, the, obviously, like with any band, the relationships were getting more complex. And then I was um, I was starting to become a lot more sort of uh, I won't say politi- more politically aware because I was always quite politically aware and I was pretty precocious in that regard but I was starting to be more vocal about how I felt about certain things regarding politics and socioeconomics and lots of other stuff and uh, and I think that may have alienated some people uh, who were in that band with me and and, so, and some of the lyrics started to you know lyrics about social injustice or imperialism or, or whatever um, and uh, and and I was allowing just influences from other genres to you know to seep in um, whenever and not you know I, I was doing that kind of unapologetically and I just love music so whatever felt appropriate mm-hmm. writing a song um, I sort of allowed it to happen I never I never felt the need I don't think I ever felt the need with a band that I was sort of where I was the principal like songwriter and, and 
front person. I, I never felt the need to, um, you know, paint within the lines and, and, and conform to a genre or a scene. If I can interrupt real quick, do you ever worry that you went back and you voiced what was going on in your life but not anybody else in the bands? I, I, have, real, I have real tyrant guilt as I look back at a lot of my old records. Like, wow, that's a really great 12-song story about Dan. You know? um, with 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 underdog because uh, that that I was the I was the tyrant there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always been the tyrant lyrically, but right. I was the tyrant musically and lyrically with underdog. Um, I suppose so, but but I it wasn't it wasn't because I just wanted to hog the attention or the you know I I just sort of felt like everyone else was okay with that but maybe well, it's the same thing the material ne- needn't necessarily have been autobiographical i'm thinking in my case i'm thinking of a band of mine that was fairly political but that you're just really not checking with the troops as you're writing you're just going you know yeah yeah i mean i don't know if it's guilt so much as i think that's actually what just started to feel a little strange to me although you know i think that in, in any band there's each person plays a role and i'm not i'm not saying there's always a hierarchy and there's always a kind of you know leader or anything Mm -hmm. Uh, but i i think that whomever is writing the lyrics um and in some bands you know that that gets passed around and i did with the beatles and the stones and the clash and and Mm -hmm. um you know, I think that that's, that's there. It, it, whomever sings those lyrics, even if it's not the person who wrote them, um, you know, I think that, I don't think that I ever said anything lyrically that the guys on stage with me passionately disagreed with, certainly. Right. And, I, I, and I remember I do have sort of vague memories of just like at rehearsals and stuff talking about what, what a song meant, you know, and right. just deciphering the lyric if it seemed okay to people or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I kind of know what you mean, but it would be, yeah. I think if everyone, if all, you know, four or five people in a band have that same, you know, uh, just drive to just say something and scream something and sing something, it might get a little weird, you know. My friend Gavin remains one of my best friends to this day, right? Running in decades and decades and decades now. And in interviews, he will still, without hesitation, tell people that working with me was exhausting. <laughs> and so and so, I find myself looking back at those years, and that's why I asked it of you, another guy who's been at it even longer, um, and just, uh, yeah, when you wanted to ask another front person whether whether they've sensed that in that role that it's I do think of the I do think these are sort of universal happenings in bands. And sometimes there are primary creators, sometimes there are partnerships, there are things. But I just sit back and sometimes I wonder, you know, like uh, there have been a few relationships I've had to repair over the years with old bandmates. Yeah. Do, like do I think that at times I was a an insufferable asshole? Sure. Yeah. I, mean, I just, I thought you well, were asking. Well said. said about, far shorter space than I used. <laughs> I thought you were asking specifically about, um, you know, did it feel weird to sort of. I was, but I think you more get to the crux of it. <laughs> but yeah, I try, uh, you know, I'd like to think I've gotten better at, at avoiding 
being okay. back these days. How long was the hang time between Underdog and Into Another? Into Another was a decidedly different audio beast, so I'd kind of like to hear where that came from. Yeah, so the, the genesis of, uh, of Into Another, it's a sort of at the tail end of Underdog. And Underdog, we kind of, we kind of knew it was all, you know, a wrap. Um, in 1989, at the end of the tour, a, a tour that ended in San Francisco followed by a long, or actually a very short, relatively speaking, drive home where we stopped just for gas. Um, but during the time that I was just feeling just sort of frustrated musically and, and kind of depressed, um, I was talking to Drew almost every day. And um, he and I had throughout the years talked about our love for, you know, for artists and for, for songs and albums, you know, outside of hardcore and punk. Um, just, and we shared a lot of common musical interests. Um, and then he and I became roommates um, shortly after that. I had an apartment uh, into which I invited him to live for, I think he was there, I think we were roommates for at least a year or two. Um, and we, we basically decided we would just start writing songs, not really knowing where it would go. Um, and by writing songs, I mean, either he would come up with uh, just some cool beats or, or, or sort of drummers and I'd write on top of him or I would bring him a song I'd written, some music and some lyrics and, and that would turn into a song. Um, we did, you know, that is the one time where we, I think I consciously tried to do something um, and there, there was a huge tongue-in-cheek element in the first book where Drew and I would try to think of just the kind of musical textures and aesthetics and, and styles and things and that, that would just kind of upset people. Like, See, you know. the, mu the music uh, never upset me. The, 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 the lyrics sometimes left me really wanting to fuck with you long distance. You know? <laughs> I, I, I would have broken that. I, but, um, yeah, so... You know, I mean, we, so, so yeah, there were times where I would very consciously like channel Rob Halford um, it, almost in a tongue in cheek way. Not to say I don't love, you know, love me some Sad Wings of Destiny or uh, Sin After Sin. But um, yeah, so, but, but also that, that being said, that m musically and lyrically, there, there was never another project of mine where I, made myself so vulnerable and expressed myself so honestly and, and uh, you know, candidly. At John Bunch Forever, I watched your set and it occurred to me it was the first time I'd ever seen the band. And yeah. I was watching people's reaction. And however tongue-in-cheek some of the execution must be, the way you just wrapped that, the final sentence and the way you were describing the experience, clearly somehow reaches people because a lot of people there were having, were in the throes of something spiritual watching you guys. And here's smart-ass old Dan in the corner going, who knew? You know? <laughs> and I, I, it, was, it was a great thing to, you know, I, I'm trying to make you laugh, yeah, but it was a great thing to witness. You know? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strange animal into another, but um, I have a, a lot of love for that, for that project. And I, 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 you know, obviously in, in my twilight years, I relish any chance we get to, to play. And who knows <laughs> if that will ever happen again. You planning on not making it to 65? Is that what I'm hearing here? I mean, 
Yeah. Okay. My late afternoon years. There we go. <laughs> so um, let's get into let, let's get into something that that sheds direct light on, and that would be uh, we both we both done a fair amount of work on Revelation Records, and we've both done work off of Revelation Records. We've both swung back to support the commemorations of the label, and played the shows. What I didn't see coming in 2012, when I, when I was very happy to show my gratitude to Jordan was that it birthed just kind of a whole nother wave of heavy, heavy rev traffic by the same artists playing the same songs. And for years, I had a really adverse reaction to it. I find myself slowly mellowing on it. Um, but how did that hit you? Did you see that coming? Did it surprise you at all? Did you feel compelled to participate at all? Um, I, I did feel a desire to participate, but also when, when that rev... Uh, you know, when that Rev 25 thing happened um, in 2012, we did kind of, first of all, Drew and I never thought it would be possible that we could, that we could do it because mm -hmm. Tony was dead and uh, we, did, we couldn't find Peter Moses anywhere. Um, and then, you know, there's, uh, that's a whole separate story. Yeah, about. Both of your California guys are bad men, though. They're, they're, yeah. they're incredible. And I got to tell you, you know, they, they are they are brothers uh, through and through, and I love yeah. those guys so much. Um, but we did we did all kind of say, you know, let's not do this unless we're going to make some new music. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just, it's, you know, what the fuck is it? You know, um, it, it, what is it other than just sort of like a manifestation of a collective midlife crisis, and you know, trying to, you know, glean a little bit of diluted you know, glory or something. So, uh, yeah, so that, that was the plan from the get-go. Like, we would do this if we were really a band and we were going to make some new music. And so we, we got to work what, what it did for me, there was, there was a trippy thing, and then it, it lit a fire under my ass, and it, it did have kind of a reactivating effect. I wasn't musically active at the time, right? But I've been musically active pretty much straight through since. There you go. Um, but what it also did is had Gavin and I looking at each other going, no for an answer, wasn't our best work, isn't our best work, will never be our best work. And it, it just made me it just made me want to do other stuff. No, mm -hmm. it's not the way anybody thinks that band, but the funnest thing about no for an answer is the internal sense of humor. And I think that Rev 25 may have been the only time we shared it with the public, with the banner, with the walker, and with the, you know, the bent over wheezing merch, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I think would have been really exciting and what made me pissy because to me there are only so many venues available and only frankly so much sustaining finances to go around in independent music was that I would like to have seen it ignite that whole squad you know I would like to have new music from everybody would have been amazing under yeah. new names under or under old names you know I, I, yeah I actually was hopeful that, that that is what was going to happen yeah that it was going to spark this whole wave of new music from everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whether it was with their reunited bands or, or new projects. Um, I'm glad I did that with you. Um, it's funny, you know, I don't know if I ever... The least talented and most outspoken of the bunch. Oh, you know, he gets back to work. Stop. Yeah, you know, and the most self-deprecating. But um, There we go. I, it's funny, you know, going back to 87, I remember before 
I, I met you, you know, basically Ryan Purcell describing you, you know, talking about Carrie Nation and everything. And you were described pretty much as like the choke of the West Coast, you know, and just this. Uh, it was a Purcell thing, man. Just this enforcer, you know, I just pictured, you know, I just pictured this six foot eight guy, with like a, <laughs> you know, like father in his head and, and just like, um, but yeah, your, your, your reputation preceded you. And it was not accurate. It was not accurate. I had a temper, but not the tools. You know. um, he could twist Pat Dubar into a pretzel. Dude, Pat <laughs> Dubar and I butted heads on the internet within the last two weeks. I didn't, I didn't even know he was out there in the ether, and I didn't think it was really him when it happened. And I felt bad because I don't, I don't wish anybody any ill at this point in the game. You know, I have I have a romanticism about certain hardcore ethics and wish everybody would live by my script. But I've kind of, you know, I've kind of started thinking. I look at real world politics and I realize I ain't going to let anybody tell me how to live there. So I'm not going to tell my fellow artists how to live here. Oh, yeah. Okay. I have no will toward any, anyone in, in music at all. Um, I do, you know, and I, I, I guess it, it's a shame our time's running out here. I mean, it's amazing we didn't get into uh, politics, but um, yeah, that's, you know, hopefully I, I could be, <clears throat> you know, what Dr. Joyce Brothers was to Johnny Carson, was, you know, right. one of, was one of his most frequent guests, you know, I could be your, your Dr. Joyce Brothers. Well, the plan right now is to finish your episode 19, I'm going to interview Gavin as episode 20, and then I'm taking <clears throat> November and most of December off to learn how to actually do this for real. Wow. Um, I took two weeks off after the first 10 and jumped right back into it because I just I was desperate to get right back into it. But now I'm like, so many people have been so kind about giving me their time and their opinions that I really need to learn to showcase this better. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like it. I like the backdrop. I, I guess, you know, you could you can invest in like a badass DSLR. And... Oh, what, beyond the fact that my equipment sucks and it's busted and I don't have the finances. But it's uh, but that. Punks, you know? Yeah, no, I was going to say, it kind of works for me, but it's lost on some of my guests, I think. You know, I get a college professor in here who's on, who's on Zoom all week long, and we're moving like robots, and I'm looking at his face going, this poor bastard, you know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you were never offenders, professor, you know? But, uh... Um, you need a sidekick, too. You need, like, you know, you need, like, an, an Ed McMahon. I don't know why I'm using Johnny Carson. Uh, but my, friend, my friend Jeff does that. He's like Alex. Alexia, Alexia is going to be your your or not? No, who was it? Since I think he said Vic Bondi was going to be my Angie Dickinson and just walk on set periodically. I love that. We're getting way off topic here, sir. I was um, thinking. I was thinking Greg Brown, but okay. I don't really speak to Greg Brown much. Orange uh -huh. County is a big and small is a small and big place. Um, I mean, when we see each other, it's 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 fine, but it's. You haven't been around for a while, Rich. <laughs> um, New York. I know. I, I should go home and get my fucking phone box. Yeah. Yeah. New I, York. I it's been a while. In New York in 2020, sir. And New York in 2020 as a father has to have been a hell of experience. An experience, particularly back in the day, back during the phase when, when Cuomo was on CNN every day with his briefings and the numbers from New York were horrifying. So tell me what you choose to about this year. Sure. Well, I, well, I will say that then in sort of mm -hmm. March, April, May, we did, 
we did spend um, we spent a few months outside of the city in, yeah. in Westbrook, Connecticut. Um, but still, um, yeah, New because New York because of the I mean, pandemic, really. Uh, yeah, uh, largely, yeah, because I, I live, um, you know, I live in a building with, you know, 200 apartments in it, and, um, and I live in a, you know, in a densely populated part of Manhattan, I guess they're all densely populated, but, um, yeah, I just felt safer having the kids up there, not having to constantly worry about whether there was going to be an outbreak in my building, and, you know, so, it was just a, a place where we could just all spend lots of time with each other and, and strum guitars and, and cook together and, you know, have some fresh air. Um, but still, it doesn't, I mean, nothing, that did nothing to kind of, you know, the, the pandemic was just sort of another chapter, a really awful chapter in this, like, dystopian graphic novel we've all been living in since 2016, you know. Um, it's like, January 2016, between you know, the, the vile buffoon being sworn in and David Bowie dying, and I don't know. Just I, I just feel like since then, you know, up is down and nothing makes sense, and it's just you know, it's just all been relentless and it's been cavalcade of shit. Constant in constant escalation. Each new chapter <clears throat> outdoes the last. You know, it's. No, I mean none of it would be plausible as a as a screenplay, right? I mean, you go back hell. You know, six years, you'd be laughed out of, you know, summarily laughed out of any uh, big Hollywood right. studio in this script. When but you came uh, back, when you came back to the city, has New has New York changed as much? It's depicted, well, I mean, it's depicted by Trump as as being dead and as being a ghost town. But I remember there was this this uh, I don't remember what venue it was in, but. You know, Jerry Seinfeld had this response to people who were calling New York dead. But I mean, did the city have its ass kicked this year? Um, it, it, it did, um, but, but you know, having gone back and forth to like the burbs and, and to New York, I mean, I have to say that, you know, there was that relatively brief period at the beginning where New York's numbers were off the charts because we are an, an entry hub. I mean, we, you know, tens of, thousands of people from Europe and Asia and, and all over the world arriving here. Um, it's very hard to get a handle on it, but, but New York actually did get a handle on it. And we have, an, <clears throat> for a very long time now, an incredibly low, sometimes sub 1% infection rate. Um, mm -hmm. Even now, while you know, surging in many places. Um, so yeah, and, and Cuomo was, was awesome. Um, I mean, you know, Trump disparaging New York, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. He's, he's, he's detested by the city and, and he's loathed and despised. And we all know he's a carnival barker and, and uh, an inept clown, you know, and a failure at everything. So, um, yeah, whatever. The feeling's mutual. What is, on, what is on your musical plate or is there a musical plate at this point in life? It's a, it's a smorgasbord. It's everything. Okay. I mean, it, but it always has been, honestly, it always has been. I mean, when I was touring in hardcore bands, you know, I would, I, I was listening, you know, to like Joan Baez or like Chopin Etudes or, you know, like a chorus line and also listening to Negative Approach and, you know, 
rudimentary peni and like i mean yeah it's it's everything it's all i explore everything. more shit that i never listened to before in my life than i ever have during the pandemic because i work i work i work in the restaurant industry but beyond that i'm exclusively at home you know and, and at home with a cat who doesn't really express what he wants to listen to so i have a lot of freedom <laughs> that's great yeah i mean yeah it's always it's just always a mixed bag um i i, I listen to music constantly and I, I mean, do you my, think the do you think the venues return and anything even vaguely resembling the old model comes back in terms of live music you know i know the consensus is no way but yeah i i can't help but think that and it might be a few years from now i do think there's the time when we all go god remember that covid19 thing and it's just mm -hmm. no live music and, right I, I, I do think at some point it returns. You know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, in 1918, there were a lot of people who thought the world would never return to normal. Um, I, I mean, I sincerely hope so. I can't imagine a world where there isn't live music or theater or, you know. Just and do you see yourself singing in front of people when that returns? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Oh, fuck it. I sometimes wonder whether I'm done. Not out of desire, but really availability, everything. I mean, there are tiny venues that you'll always be able to kick down the door to and get in places that will book anybody. But who knows exactly what the demand will be, what venue availability versus artists available is, everything. I mean, it could be, you know, the oh, man yeah. is that a man in his mid 50s may not be a high demand product, you know, after when the smoke clears. Yeah, no, no, of course not. Oh, yeah, I in no way was implying that, that, that people would actually attend these events. Where, where in, <laughs> but I have every intention of, like, you know, standing in a room somewhere. Um, well, my thing is, is, will I be able to motivate three other musicians to do so under different conditions? Because it's, it's been tough. It's been tough enough the last few years anyway. Really, really fulfilling, but not as easy as it was when we were kids. Oh, yeah, same thing. Yeah. I have to wrangle people from four corners of the continent. To True enough. I remember when I was hearing that it was, that it was Reed and it was Balchik. I was like, excuse me? It's a bit of a commute for practice. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it's not easy to pull off. <clears throat> and it's certainly it's not a high profit margin either. But um, no. it's, it's infinitely rewarding. Final subject. Richie Birkenhead is a father. Richie Birkenhead is a family man. Um, yeah. Uh, you you have been more informed than the average bear most most of your life to my perception. You are an extremely creative person. Um, what are the most familiar aspects of Richie or the things that most of us who know you through music see that are actually involved in what you try to impart to your children? Um, a great deal. I mean, I, you know, I, I have a, a daughter who will be 12 in December. I have a son who turned eight this past July. Um, they're both um, quite precocious intellectually. They're both, like I was, uh, hypersensitive and hypercreative. Um, and, you know, um, atypical in the best ways. And, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I think I'm giving them a very different uh, experience growing up than what I had. Um, I'm, I talk often with them very deeply, very honestly about like everything about the human condition, yeah. about, about kindness and compassion and, and 
pursuing things you love and, uh, you know, and avoiding, and, and you know, I, I can definitely fall into, you know, despair and cynicism and things that I, so, that, so I, I try and steer them away from those mm -hmm. things. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, nothing, there's nothing that means more to me and, and nothing I've ever felt more deeply than, you know, the, the love I feel for my children and the protectiveness I feel. Oh, it's me. a level of responsibility that exceeds my understanding. That's why I'm always fascinated to ask people about it in interviews because I, it is a world I do not know and I frankly find intimidating as hell. Yeah, and I'll tell you know I the one thing I didn't sign up for, well I guess I did because I just see I just see the writing on the wall and uh, you know back in 2008 when Charlotte was born, but I, I didn't realize we would be this far along on the precipice of like you know the next mass extinction, uh, civil war, autocracy, like just so many things that are around the corner um, that are really bad. And have really bad implications and and um so yeah it's 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 a really heady time to be bringing up children yeah that's for sure i would imagine it is well listen i'm gonna wrap it up there uh i got to everything i wanted to get to and i was thrilled to hear you joke about us uh replicating carson for the modern for the modern age so richie thank you so much for doing this and you will absolutely hear from me again sir Thanks, Dan. That, that makes me happy. It's always great to have an excuse to see you and speak with you. So, Likewise, sir. I appreciate it. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard.